The problem is the technology is ahead of the social policy. I thought that nonspecific EKG changes was potentially a dangerous set of words. A $4 million verdict was probably a good deal. Why do you tell me that? You've just turned a thousand people off medicine. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, rather than putting in an IV, rather than stopping the bleeding, they were shooting pictures for their Facebook friends. Settle. Everybody settle quickly. Lethargic is not how you kind of feel after an In-N-Out burger. Stable's a place for horses, not patients. Oh, that's cute. I would like to now just spend a little time and go vomit, if that's all right with you. Let's look at a topic and some cases to go with it, gentlemen. If you look around this table, everybody's got something strapped to their wrist, which has the ability now to take pictures, do movies, put things on the internet. They're smaller than the old traditional pack of cigarettes. They can go everywhere. Just be careful. You know, using Facebook and Twitter and all that other stuff, which I don't do, to blog or to vent or to tell people that their life sucks is probably okay for most people. I still think it's a huge waste of time. (laughs) And why would I want a thousand people telling me when they're having a good bowel movement? I mean, it's just not worth it. But for medical providers, this can be a problem. And I'd like to review right now four cases. I'll throw them out, decide when you want to jump in. But it all has to do with that device, Mel, that you're holding right now in your hand. No, he's actually holding his phone, ladies and gentlemen. Many hospitals around the country have developed some no-tolerance policies with respect to the use of Facebook and similar websites at work. And they struggle with how to manage the various forms of, I guess the term now in the risk management literature in hospitals is professional social networking. I guess that's the hip term. And here's just some examples. June 2010. Close stuff. Five nurses who worked at Tri-City Medical Center in Oceanside, California, were fired after discussing patients on Facebook with no patient names, photos, they could still be identified by other things, were included in these posts. And the California Department of Public Health has now launched an investigation. Hospital did respond did fire the nurses, it did violate the policy, but the California Department of Health is now investigating to see if the hospital is guilty of other problems. And it was very clearly stated in the hospital's policies they should not be doing this. Comments, gentlemen. Yeah, I got a lot of comments. So (laughs) what exactly were the details here? And I'll tell you why I'm specifically interested in this, because I do this. I follow, I have Twitter and I have Tumblr and I do all this stuff, not because I don't think Facebook's useless. I think it is. But I think it's an extraordinarily useful educational endeavor. And so there's Sanjay Gupta, who everybody knows in this country. Yes. He's a very famous neurosurgeon, works for CNN. And his Twitters, he sends out these Twitters and says, what do you think of this case? And it's one of his patients. And they'll have, say, a spinal cord injury. And he'll show the picture and say, can you see the lesion? What do you think? And I find it extraordinarily educational But is Sanjay Gupta, my hero, doing stuff that he shouldn't be doing? Because I do stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you, he's pushing the limit right now. We're going to discuss three more cases. But the problem is, when did you get the right? Does he got a separate signed release on this? Everybody and his uncle can see this. You know what? 
Is this going to affect this guy's employment down the road sometime? I think this is very bold. I mean, not that Sanjay Gupta is a bad guy, because I'm sure he isn't. The problem is the technology is ahead of the social policy. We don't know what to do with this technology as far as controlling it. And I promise you this, here in Los Angeles, if you're at Cedars Hospital, you work there, Hospital to the Stars, and you're calling up Lindsay Lohan's chart, you better have a reason that you've called that up because that's a fireable offense at Cedars to call anybody's chart up that you're not directly taking care of. Well, that's a different matter than basically this Twitter business because Sanjay doesn't say the name of the patient. And you don't know whether the patient's contemporaneously under his care or not. I mean, people in all of these journals and magazines write case studies, like New England Journal. They're talking about a case in the New England Journal as a step off to a discussion of a topic. How is that any different? And we do it also when we give a lecture. How many people give lectures, and here's a picture of the x-ray, and here's a picture of the rash of the patient that I saw with this disease. Uh, But you notice that they black out the eyes on a lot of those cases. They've gotten permission. In fact, they ask you now, when you are going to give a lecture, if you're going to have any materials that are copyrighted, if you're going to have shots of patients, do you have releases? I think that we need to be sensitive to where we are in this. Let me give you another case Before you go there, did these nurses state the patient's name or no name? For some reason, they were able to figure out who the patients were. Okay. Now, they did not use the name. But all I'm saying is the hospital had a policy that you are not to discuss anything on business on these social networks. Well, they violated it. The other thing is, you got to ask yourself this question. How do other people know they did it? because somehow it got sent to other people. And our problem is this. If you have 500 quote-unquote Facebook friends, that's funny because you only got two people who can stand you live, but in a virtual reality, 500 people are your friend. You're actually sending this crap out? I mean, we need to think about it. Here's case number two. 2009, two Wisconsin nurses were fired after taking photos of a patient's x-ray, which was distinctive and embarrassing. And in all honesty... We all have one of those in our folder at home someplace and posting it on Facebook. In addition, photos of nurses having a food fight at the same hospital caused an uproar because the incident took place after a heavily publicized reports that linked patient deaths at that hospital to staff shortages and poor nursing care. Comments, gentlemen. This whole topic I find fascinating. Everybody has a camera in their hospital now. Every patient, every doctor, every paramedic, every nurse, and they are taking pictures of things constantly and they're uploading. I've seen patients take pictures of other patients. Well, I've seen patients taking pictures of themselves. I've seen it all. Well, do you have a policy at your hospital? I have because, no idea. Because as far as I'm concerned, I don't know why we would think that some patient can be sitting in the waiting room or in a four-bed room taking pictures of other patients. And we've had that problem where you had to say put the camera away. Who's right here, Rick? You know, they used to have in the emergency department these signs that said no cell phones. 
And I always resented that because, you know, there was the belief that, or I don't know if it was even a belief, that these things would screw up the monitor and you would find somebody in fibrillation from the cell phone and you'd shock them inappropriately while they're talking to you and all. It was nutty. So I objected to that. I wanted to take these signs down. I wanted that family to be able to speak to their wife or something like that from the bed in the back. But now there's a different element. They're not just phones anymore. They're cameras. And so maybe the policy ought to be a nice big sign saying, for your protection and the protection of our patients, no photography is allowed whatsoever in the department. That basically allows people to understand that that would be inappropriate if a nurse sees somebody taking a picture. But I don't think you can just have them check their telephones as they come into the door. All right, let me give you a case, not in this four list, but one which is going on right now in the state of Michigan, because this is exactly what Mel was talking about. A family member during the resuscitation of a child is photographing the entire thing in the department, basically told, why don't you put that away and saying, I'm documenting this in case there's a lawsuit and we want to sue you guys. So do a good job here. And she's got this thing up there filming the entire event of the resuscitation of a child. Would you like that going on? And is there a policy here that ought to go with that? Well, I would say that the biggest problem with that is um, getting consent of the other people that are in that video. So can you just take a, a video of a doctor or a nurse without their consent? I mean, this... Does CNN have to do that when they're walking down the street and they're getting a man on the street interviews? I would think that you probably are protected by saying, no, you don't have consent of the doctors and nurses to take a video. You can't do that. If you want to get their consent and then video them, yeah, that's fine. I understand this. Nobody in that room is going to give that consent. No. This family says we have the technical ability to look at, after all, if it's going to be evidence in court, we can block out doctors' faces. We don't care about that. But we want to document the care to decide whether it was whether it met the standard of care because you got a kid who's arrested. Is this kid going to die? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. Do you want that shown uh, in a courtroom, Ricky? What do you think? I think it's really tough, but I, I tend to agree that um, with Mel that you, you can't. This kind of came up with when they were were doing trauma cases. Remember where that when. Um, there was what what was the name of the show where they would have patients come in trauma cases they would video them these people obviously gave uh, were not capable trauma of trauma life in the ear was yeah yeah life in the ear and did, wasn't USC involved in yes, that yes uh, Stuart Swadron was on one of those and that what they do I spoke to one of the producers there is that they would um, you know, a lot of the times they couldn't get consent up front so they blurred you and then they would run around afterwards and say here's the video we shot and uh, can we get consent from you now and then. The, this producer said, but it's also it's unclear whether you whether that is illegal if you take out all patient identifiers. This is something I deal with all the time because of medical education. So some people say as long as you take out all the medical identifiers, you're fine. And other people say you're not. And there was a thing in the annals a few years ago with Joel Guiderman, I think, on one side and somebody else discussing this. Um, Keith Iverson, maybe it was. Mm-hmm. And it was really unclear as to where the law sits about taking pictures and then removing patient identifiers. Because to me, that's the biggest issue. As long as I take off your name, why can't I show your x-ray? It's for medical education. Let we me, need to do that. We've got to do that. Let me in, uh, interject another, another case study. See what you think. February 2010. See, all of this stuff is recent. We're not talking about 
you know, 1954 cases here. 2010, Martin Memorial Medical Center, Stewart, Florida. Disciplined several ED employees for taking cell phone pictures of a shark attack victim who later died. The pictures were never posted, uh, but the hospital was concerned about the HIPAA violations. The investigation concluded that the actions were inappropriate. Poor judgment was exercised. We do not know the final outcome of this or what those what the pictures were used for, because that's still ongoing. But the hospital did take a disciplinary action about the uh, the pictures of the shark bite. Any anything unusual there? Well, I don't know about unusual. It it happens all the time. We have paramedics who bring in patients who have multiple pictures from the scene. Uh, sometimes where it's a person's decapitated or something else, and and these are constantly flowing. Sometimes they're very helpful. I when I see the car is crushed and upside down, I'm like, oh, now I understand mechanism of injury. Sometimes it's completely inappropriate. But then, and for example, we had a scenario a number of years ago. Um, about 10 years ago where the nurses dressed up one of these frequent flyers and put him in a funny hat and he was intoxicated and uh, they sort of were making fun of him and that was a big deal and people were fired over it. So that's a clear violation. You can't do that. But these other things, I worry about it for education reasons. I want people to take pictures of great rashes and interesting things and present them and show them because I learn from that and that's important. But there's a way we can do that by getting permission of the patient and the vast majority at least in my career if i've asked them can we take your picture and use it for teaching purposes they're happy to participate in that i've, I've never had anybody say no <laughs> i've never had anybody say no either uh here, let me throw the last one out here just so that we can talk about it uh, uh st mary's uh, medical center long beach california uh to you, you know none of these things are are ethereal We've got the names and the places and what happened. Two th- April 2010, ED staff snapped pictures of a 60-year-old nursing home patient who arrived in the ED after being stabbed more than a dozen times by a fellow resident of the nursing home. His throat slashed so severely that he was practically decapitated. The pictures were posted on Facebook by one of the nurses and spread, then somebody took it and put it on the internet. The patient died, and the allegations are that the staff was more, (laughs) there's a lawsuit here, was more focused on photography than treatment. Um, I only throw this out, but if I was the plaintiff managing this case, I can hear the closing to the jury right now. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Rather than putting in an IV, rather than stopping the bleeding, they were shooting pictures for their Facebook friends. Isn't it nice that they were able to document the death? Isn't it sad that they were unable to save the life? What do you think, boys and girls? Well, my summary to this is... uh You've got to be extraordinarily careful with what you're doing. You should get consent whenever it's possible. I think there's a big difference between doing it for education and doing it for fun and sticking it on Facebook because I don't want – and I really get anxious about people taking pictures because my thought is you're going to screw this up for the rest of us. Those of us that want to do this for education for real reasons, you are going to screw it up by your stupid pictures and your stupid posting. There's no question about this. There's 165 or 168 take MD and DOs, residencies in emergency medicine in the United States. Okay, 
I understand why they're taking pictures and getting permission. What about the other 4,800 hospitals? Yeah, there's just slightly less than 5,000 hospitals, I think, in the U.S. Rick always has that number because he mails to them. But uh, I understand why in a teaching situation you're obtaining permission, asking the family. But we're talking in this section here about a lot of other purposes, documenting for a lawsuit. We're talking about humor. We're talking about one patient taking pictures of another patient and putting it on the Internet. Uh, you know, yeah. this, is a big, this is a big topic. What, well, I want to go back to what Rick was talking about because this is also comes up. There's a lot of procedures that by their very nature you can't get consent right now. Somebody comes in and they're getting a thoracotomy. It's incredibly useful teaching material, but I can't consent <laughs> yeah, the person. Most thoracotomies, by the way, are the beginning of the autopsy. Exactly. Yes. But and so if you save the person in the end, you can go ask for consent later. But if you're taking off the patient identifiers and you're using it for education, is that a problem? Well, I thought uh, Joel Geiderman's position was rather broad and basically said all of this trauma stuff when that show was um, popular was inappropriate. I, I don't I don't want to overstate his position. But I do believe that it's time to, you know, they, they have these documents that they gave patients when they come into the hospital. And maybe, I think, maybe it could be even posted on the wall that uh, any any picture taking is prohibited. Now, I think you can say that in a very nice way, to, that it, it's a, real, a matter of privacy and your your privacy and other people's privacy so I, I don't think it, could, it would be viewed as slapping your hands. Um, and I also think that there should be a policy for hospital employees, and this should be a no-tolerance policy. If you're caught taking a picture of anything in this hospital, no matter what it is, you are out. You are out. Because you can't – there's this slippery slope. Oh, well, it was only a picture of – and then you have to make these judgments. I think that – this is a place where there probably ought to be a no-tolerance policy. I, I, want to, I want us to draw this together for our, our listeners. It's interesting they've heard this. But I've got a, a sort of a list of some suggestions here, and I'd like to see you guys comment on that. First one is separate out your private life and your, and your business life. I don't see why you're posting anything on Facebook or Twitter or the Internet, which you took at work. Um, with permission, without permission, you know what? We need to have a separate private life, which is handled privately. And why you'd have to have the, the pictures of a uh, of a thoracotomy on Facebook? I don't really understand that very well, and we ought to talk about it. Uh, secondly, sort of uh, uh, look at the privacy of settings. And think about this. There's no absolute here, but you and I don't talk about uh, Mrs. Smith, who we saw, with our wives. If, if you and I both know Mrs. Smith, Mrs. Smith is somebody who lives in the neighborhood. I never mentioned to my wife, I, I took a look at her gonorrhea, I listened to her heart disease. I just think that's inappropriate. So why would it be appropriate to put on out to 500 people on your Facebook pages. Well, this is just a, basically a new medium for the disclosure of inappropriate information. We have a paper in the database that goes back a long way where they recorded people in an elevator, uh, you know, medical personnel, talking about other people, yes. other patients who could be reasonably identified in some cases 
Um, and this was Elevator Chatter. In fact, the actual name of that paper, I think, was Elevator Talk. And two people rode up and down in an eight-floor uh, hospital. And every fourth trip, there was a discussion where they could identify a patient. And they quoted in that paper some of the damnedest comments you ever heard. There were two risk managers going up. And one said to the other, well, we ought to talk to the family. After all, we did kill her. I mean, the, these things were actually recorded. Oopsie. Well, they also had two residents going up and identified a woman. Well, we got to go see Mrs. So-and-so in 558, uh, you know, the beached whale. And they had no idea who these other people were in the, in the situation. Uh, here's the other end of this, and that is, I don't want anybody here to start blogging, talking, internetting about any specific legal case they're involved in. I know you're frustrated. I know you don't like it. I know you'd like to take somebody out and shoot them, but please don't start making a record because the last thing I want is to see uh, some attorney subpoena your, uh, your, uh, your Internet record, uh, your, your t- Twitters, your blogs, your this, your that, uh, and they'll ask you uh, – I can see this coming. They'll ask you now in deposition. Have you sent an email about this case to anyone other than your attorney? Because the attorney-client privilege would be invoked. But if you've now decided to tell your, your buddy in Cleveland about uh, this unfair lawsuit, uh, understand that may be a discoverable aspect. Well, now, have we solved anything? I don't know. Well, you we want to take pictures for education. Well, there are some. I know that there are some departments here in LA that, on their general consent, it states that um, because we had this discussion when those articles and the annals came out, that it specifically states that your picture can be taken for uh, with identifiers removed for education purposes, and it's part of the general consent. And I don't know if that really protects them, but they say we take pictures of patients all the time. It's fine. We remove the patient identifiers. This is a teaching institution. You need to know that's going to happen. Yeah, and what they what the the implied consent in that is it will be handled respectfully. There's no implied consent here that I'm going to put it on my Facebook page for 500 people. I mean, when when you think about the average person, when they think about a medical photography section, after all, the plastic surgeons take a picture of everybody they work on, every single patient. They wouldn't even think about touching you without uh, taking photos. But the implied, the quid pro quo is you can take my picture. You have no business using it for other than locality, this place, my professional benefit to me. That's what it's for. Here's one of the ones that I think, uh, it, it annoys me. I, it may be of no consequence, Greg, you never saw a case of where it was an issue, but I see this all the time. And you see this where they, um, where when somebody gets injured and the hospital gives a report on their status to the TV pokes, they say they're stable. Right. Uh, does that mean they're, they're critical and stable or normal and stable? You know, uh, and I see this for vital signs stable all the time. There's only one patient in the department who has stable vital signs, the dead one. <laughs> uh, they're perfectly stable, zero over zero, and we know what the temperature is. It's going to be room temperature shortly. So I'm and- looking at uh, phrases that I think could help um, 
detract the quality of your record and therefore detract the quality of your practice in terms of the jury, how they would, might perceive this. So vital sign stable, what does it really mean? What is stable? Stable does not mean normal. Correct. But I think many people, you know, view those as synonyms. Well, obviously, that's not the case. A blood pressure that's 160 over 100 on multiple measurements is stable, but it is abnormal, but stable. But it has to be then taken into account because if they're a patient with hypertension and they report that that's their normal blood pressure, that may be the case. Also, vital signs cannot be stable unless they're repeated. If you do it once and don't never repeat it, how can you use the phrase vital, vital signs are stable? Well, you can't. It's a, it's a misnomer at that point in time. But I do like, I do like the phrase uh, vital signs uh, within normal expected limits. Uh, that seems logical to me. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that. But um, I think that we have somehow gotten into this verbal trap of vital signs stable, uh, which is very misleading, or can be. Can be misleading. Well, what it can be is open to interpretation. What you'd prefer to have is not a lot of people kibitzing about what the interpretation of that number is. And I, I think that's that's fair. Uh, there's probably nothing as as uh, poorly understood, and that it includes by the medical community as uh, vital signs. Because uh, I've seen plenty of people who are bleeding to death who have, who have bradycardia. We've done, we've done those discussions and mm-hmm. presented those papers right. a, a hundred times. So uh, to think that there's one interpretation of a set of vital signs is completely wrong. So I like your term that I'm going to use that from now because I fall into that trap, you know, vital signs stable when I really mean vital signs within expected normal range. Right. You know, so I will use that term from now. So there you I'll go. Strike that. that word out. Stable. Gone. Stable gone. Now, it may be stable, but that, but that doesn't tell you normal. Maybe you could say it's nor- they're stable and normal. Yeah. I don't know. Stable is a place for horses, not patients. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> Next. Uh, let's do number three because we really did number two. Uh, awake, alert, or headed times four. I guess I've seen that so many times on a um, on a physical exam. I have no idea what some of these people are talking about. I think it's much better if you state what you tested. Patient is oriented to place, person, uh, carrying on normal conversation. That I can relate to. To say that they're oriented times four it is... It's okay as long as everybody's in agreement with what that is. But just understand, it isn't always understood by everyone. Oriented times three probably is person, place, and time. But this fourth one, I think that's often debated as to what we mean by by that. By the way, examination should reflect why the patient's in there. If they're in for a cut foot... And you say oriented times three. I can handle that because it's never going to be an issue. If grandma's in because they say she's not right at the nursing home, her, she's met, her mental status is wrong, that's an inadequate mental status examination at that point in time. And so to say oriented times three on grandma, well, does that reflect why she came to the department? So what I think it is is in some places overstatement because we don't care. And if the actual chief complaint is neurologic, it's mentation, then it's probably not adequate enough. I think this is somewhat like 
vital signs stable, you just kind of get used to using this phraseology and don't really take responsibility for it's it. It's not a thought process. It's a it's a brainstem it's, reflex. It's a reflex. Yeah. And, and yeah, most of the people <clears throat> use you know stable times three. I mean. Um, oriented times three but there is another version called oriented times four and if you yes. don't know what four is then it, it will you will be discredited four is supposedly you know time place person and situation the patient knows where they are where, and why they're on. there yeah yes exactly so be careful about using four if in fact you don't know what four means go back to three but i guess we're talking about here knee-jerk phrases that may get you in trouble in terms of discrediting your record. Yeah. Nurses' notes reviewed. Now, Gregory, you would say that's a good thing to put down. <laughs> oh. it, it's, a, it's an essential phrase. It's, a, it's an essential phrase at this point. When you disagree with the nursing notes, um, I don't always say nursing notes reviewed unless there's a difference. And believe me, if I pick up a difference between what they say, and, and let's, let's just be honest about some of the phrases that get us in trouble. Whenever it says uh, patient lethargic, lethargic kid to me means spinal tap. That's what lethargic means. That kid's, that kid's floppy. That kid's not right. If, lethargic is not how you kind of feel after an In-N-Out burger, which we're all going to find out about shortly. The uh, lethargic is somebody who has truly depressed mental status. When I see that note in a, in a nursing note, what I know is this. I'm either agreeing and we're on our way to a major head workup or I've got to comment on that nursing note and show where I don't see it at this moment in time. Well, you made the statement uh, you, o- you might only make that comment nurses' notes reviewed when you have a disagreement with what they've written. It, don't you think it's a great idea to write that phrase all the time? Yeah, I think it is a great idea. I mean, there's a lot of things that are great ideas. What I'm saying is if you have the time and the patience and can write it all the time and, and of course, be honest about it, you actually did, terrific. But you have no choice but to use that phrase uh, when you have when, when you uh, there's a difference in what you find because the one thing the chart has to do is tell a consistent story from beginning to end I should be able to pick up that chart read it and not even look at the diagnosis line and arrive at the same diagnosis or differential that you have if I can't do that if I've now got the nurse saying uh, lethargic child, you know, limp, and you've got, um, you know, normal cephalic, normal-looking kid, all that kind of stuff. Those two have not, that problem has not been resolved. Resolve it. And by that means, I don't, I, there's three ways I resolve these things. I say nursing ne- note appreciated, which is my shorthand for nursing note. Not appreciated. Not appreciated. I guess. Yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, but I have to answer it anyway, and I say at this time, this is what I find. Mm-hmm. The other thing I can do is I can call the nurse in and say, you noticed something here. Would you show it to me? And if she can't find it, say, would you, would you please make another entry on the nursing note? And I'll tell you where I see that more is not in the lethargic case, but in the case of wheezing or in rebound tenderness of the abdomen. I've, I've seen so many nurses know that say rebound tenderness. I can't find it. And to me, a positive rebound means peritonitis, still proven otherwise. That's what 
it means to me. So if I can't find it and she can, come in and show me so that I can resolve this. But I, I, I can't overemphasize the number of cases I've seen where there's a nursing note or a nursing entry not answered by the doctor. Well, this this section is kind of called dangerous words, and I don't think nurses' notes reviewed is obviously dangerous. I think it's a good thing to do. I think it makes it look like you're trying to do a good job. It makes it look like you're credible to a layman. But one of the issues here is throughout the stay of a patient, nurses are going to be charting. And for persons there three or four or five hours, they're going to be charting over and over and over. And many times when people say nurses' notes reviewed, really all they're reviewing is the triage note, the first note of chief complaint and the things that they get at that time. And I'm wondering wondering whether, in fact, there is anything that could be done to suggest that you have read. It would seem that the most important time to read the note is before they leave. Well, it, it, let me let me put forward a, a suggestion. If I, when I look at all of these cases where there's been a problem, it's a miscommunication question, and that is, whenever a nurse finds a negative, here's the rule I would make: anyone charting who has a negative comment, it has to also say, "Doctor Henry advised." That's terrific. Or, or brought to bedside. That's terrific. Because here's the point. You could say, well, it's in, the, it's in the nursing notes, but maybe you haven't read them for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. You're not constantly reading every nursing note. Right. I think, and, and here, here's the last one, no negative nursing note at the time of discharge. I actually have a case, I, I think I've mentioned this before, where it says, patient now can't move left arm, helped into car. It actually says that in the nursing note. Now, to me, if it said can't move left arm, called the doctor to the to the bedside. See, I can re- I can relate to that. Or now we take a blood pressure. They came in at one forty over ninety. Now it's uh, one twelve over seventy, and the pulse rate's now one hundred and fourteen. See, I don't know what good it is to write that down without also saying IV turned up. Dr. Henry brought to the room, uh, ordered this or that. You know what? Let, let's think about what this actually is. If it's for the patient's benefit, then benefit the patient. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to alert the physicians is to, say, is to have this phraseology, doctor advise, and do it. And do, do it. it. We had a case just like that you're talking about where uh, somebody was about to go home. They were involved in a a traffic accident, and uh, they uh, basically had some difficulty walking out. So the EMT helped them out, gave them a wheelchair. Next next day, they came back with their spinal injury. Yeah, yeah. yeah, You know what? Whenever it doesn't follow the usual course, uh, one of my partners once suggested there ought to be a single box at the end which says, Patient um, awake, alert, oriented, symptoms improved, feels better now, wants to go home. And if you can't check that box, you got to run. You got to ask the doctor again. Well, the nurses have a box which uh, is requ- requires them to say something about the condition on discharge. But the point is, if they can't say something positive about your condition on discharge. Well- you have to notify the doctor. Well, I think it's a joint commission or something like that thing because it's usually just a couple of boxes. Yeah. It doesn't really help you very much. But you know what? If you can't check the box, then just come talk to me. I, I, I think it's so obvious 
that it isn't obvious. It's They're too busy filling out the charts for billing pers- purposes and not thinking that the real function of the chart is taking care of the patient. I uh, went to UCLA a couple of weeks ago and uh, walked through the ER. They have... The it's, new hospital. It's, it's a brand new ER. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many beds they have there. Certainly not like the number yeah, that like USC has. 30 or 40 or something like that. Maybe you know, it's nothing. It's 30 or 40. No big deal. Whatever happened to the great gray mother? <laughs> uh, oh, USC. 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 You got like 140 beds? Yeah, something like that. Well, yeah. anyway, I went to U- UCLA, the home <laughs> yeah. of the stars kind of thing. Went into the emergency room. And I, God, I wish I uh, could have taken a picture. There were at least 12 computer monitors around this this uh, uh, central station, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there was a soul at every one of them, you know, documenting. You know, it was the antithesis of what I think should uh, go on. But everybody was there in front of their monitor, doing the thing, entering their data that nobody else would ever be reading. Yep, exactly. Which nobody gives a crap about. Uh, here's another one, uh, Perla. We all write this on the charts. Uh, uh, no, we don't. <laughs> well, every everybody else writes this on the chart. Pupils equal and reacting to light and accommodation. Now, Greg has said this before. The problem with that is, is that you did not do that, you liar. So uh, I guess a smart lawyer can come up and say, well, uh, you wrote on here, uh, Perla. Um, tell me uh, what is accommodation and uh, how you did it, because nobody does that. Well, the other thing is, here. here's the way I have trained lawyers to ask the question. Uh, doctor, uh, it's a, you wouldn't write down things that you don't do, would you? No. That would be considered a lie. No, I would never do and that. And you, you wouldn't write things down that you didn't understand, No, would you? Absolutely Counselor. not. So if it says heartbeat 110, the heartbeat's 110 or close to it. Yes, sir. yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm willing to let you go to the board right now mm-hmm. and uh, draw out both near point and far point accommodation, and I will let you start at either the Edinger Westfall or the pretectal nucleus, and I've written this all out for you so they know, and you can show us exactly how you did accommodation testing on this patient. Um, Go ahead, doctor. Uh, 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 yeah. See, but the, uh, but the point is, if you don't <laughs> you think your credibility in front of those people cannot be destroyed by that, uh, it can be. Do what you do. What you write down. Write down what you do. But don't pretend things. First of all, there is no emergency disease that requires the checking of accommodation. If there's anybody listening who's actually saved somebody by checking accommodation, <laughs> quite frankly, you're full of shit, and 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 uh, you could have diagnosed it some other way. But you're right. Tertiary syphilis does it. There are cases in multiple sclerosis where it may be affected. There is something called DeVick's neuromyelitis optica where it might be involved. The problem is if you don't need to put something down, don't do it. Well, this is part of the knee-jerk documentation that you learned along with vital sign stable and uh, uh, these other kinds of things we're talking about. Right. We've built, beat this into the ground in the past, but it needs to be here as well because maybe some people have not understood the significance of this. Uh, what is accommodation, doctor? Accommodation is the entire process of visual reflection where we get certain changes in the in the pupils based on looking into the distance and when we're looking close up. 
and and the the pupillary responses here. For example, if we talk about the Argyle Robertson pupil, which is seen in uh, in uh, syphilis, for example, we're looking something which is a twenty five year change between the initial syphilitic lesion and the tertiary syphilis uh, that affects the brain. If we're talking about midbrain accommodation questions, uh, the, these are complex issues which are never an emergency medicine question. Do you remember? So, I was going to say, do you know how I remember the uh, what that pupil looks like? Do you have that mnemonic? Yeah. So if you've got syphilis, prostitutes have syphilis. Yes. They can accommodate, but they don't can, react. Don't react. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. Well, it seems the way to go here is just to strike that A out rather than try to understand. It. Of course, <laughs> I can't understand it. It's coming. It's off coming my out tomorrow. It's out but, but see, the point is. It's so easy to train emergency medicine residents to say, "No, don't ever put that in. You never, you never did it." And uh, you it's, know, you're well, not it's actually it. not that hard. It's, I mean, it is hard because it's untraining, which is the hardest form of training. It takes ten times as much effort. Yeah, because they've been taught by some neurologist or wherever it gets taught in med school, and and untraining is very difficult. It's going to be very hard for me to write, to uh, not write that there. Yeah, but but you will but accomplish. I will it. Are you a Perla you, guy? Actually, no, I never write that. No. Yeah, That's yeah. not one of well, the things you know, I write. Well, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. But I write time, but stable all the We've time. frightened enough people over the years. I, th- I hope they've stopped. This, this is basic stuff. stuff here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there's one for you, Greg. It's about all foreign bodies removed or something to that extent. <clears throat> well, <laughs> whenever you remove a foreign body, um, make sure that you've looked around and in the comment to the patient, when they say, what have you removed? You know, well, we got out. The best we could. Could there be any retained foreign material? What's the answer to that? Yes, of course there is. I think the best way, uh, in the old days, before seatbelts, we used to sit there picking out glass out of the foreheads of people who have been badly tattooed. And some obvious stuff I got out. But I immediately told them, you know what? Your face is going to be spitting this stuff out over the next two weeks. Don't be alarmed by this. Because if you don't tell them, you don't warn them, they will, they'll get all upset uh, when something else comes out. If you tell them, then you're so smart. You knew what was going to happen to them in, in, in the future. Uh, and, it, and it's hard to know with foreign bodies sometimes what we're going to do. I always leave a, in the discussion with the patient a cushion. Can we get everything out? We tried. Is it always perfect? Nope. We may need to see you back again if it becomes red, swollen, all this sort of thing. I had a, I had a case where a, a, a <clears throat> patient was riding by, gal on a horse, a fence post, the nail sticking out cutter. She came in, doc looks at the wound, puts one stitch in it, that kind of stuff. And, of course, what does she have at the base of that wound? Her jeans. A piece of blue <laughs> jean which did not show up on the x-ray done of the leg. By the way, did not show up second time in when she had a CT scan of that area. And eventually, with the pus and the draining, one of the orthopods got a, uh, a, uh, an MRI of the leg, and there it was. They had to go in and take it out. But it was about that big. That was a lawsuit. And it, uh, you know, did you inspect the genes? Did you measure the size of the hole in the genes to know whether anything was missing? I mean, this kind of stuff can get crazy. Leave yourself an out here so that, yeah, there could still something be in there. 
Rick, you're going to talk about non-specific EKGs. Well, I might disagree with you on this. Let's see what you got. Okay, yeah, this is one that I kind of struggled with, but I have a pro- little problem with it. And it, what I would like to do is encourage you to send us in what you think may be dangerous words. Uh, I'm sure that there is a bunch more out there. This is just like a couple hours worth of cogitation. So send us your da- your dangerous words. We're going to have dangerous diagnoses too. They're a lot easier to do than dangerous words. Yeah. So I thought that nonspecific EKG changes was uh, potentially a dangerous set of words. Um, in and of itself, it it, it, it says suggests that um, it's not normal. And then does that mean by default it is abnormal? Is there are is this a dichotomous kind of thing, normal or abnormal? What do you think, Mel? Normal well, or abnormal? Come on, I'm think, leading you down a path now, Chief. <laughs> well, uh, non-specific EKG changes actually has a specific uh, set of criteria for what they are: how deep the T waves can be, how much uh, SD segment depression you're allowed to have. So there's actually in the American College of Cardiology guidelines for unstable angina (MI) for low risk chest pain, they have a category of non-specific, and it means. It's not completely normal. It doesn't fit the criteria for abnormal, like SD segment elevation more than a millimeter or deep T-wave inversion more than two millimeters. It's between those two. But with all EKGs, it's about how you interpret it because a normal EKG is consistent with an MI. If you've got crushing retrosternal chest pain, you've got a normal EKG, still probably an MI. Non-specific is uh, consistent with an MI or unstable angina. An abnormal EKG is consistent. So it's how you interpret it. So I think it's reasonable to put non-specific AKG, as long as you understand what that means. That is consistent with you're fine, there's no coronary artery disease, or you're about to drop dead from a heart attack. I think that all the cases that I've reviewed, the positive is never a problem. I mean, if you're sitting there and there's a big ST segment elevation, if you've missed that one, you, you probably shouldn't be doing this for a living. It's always the negative. And the negative EKG is associated with an MI one-third the time. If we look at the biggest study out of Harvard, one-third of people who we know are going to have an MI or having an MI in front of you had it was non-diagnosable off the EKG. Yeah, well, we know that, but I guess my concern is we have this set of words, nonspecific EKG changes. That changes implies a a difference from something else changes uh, and was that something else a normal ekg and now we have changes from that normal ekg and we don't really know what they mean yeah and by the way there's lots of things other than heart disease that can cause those changes the first time the you the word the phrase was used non-specific stt wave changes was in a patient with a sub uh, with a subdural hematoma at the massachusetts general hospital and the guy looked at the EKG, this is you know, back in the 20s or 30s, and said, those are nonspecific changes coming from the brain, not the heart. You know what? You, you're right, Mel. It is the interpretation of that which is the question. I don't like the phrase, just like Rick doesn't like the phrase, because it's either normal, which still doesn't rule out the disease, or it's abnormal in which we got to have some answer to the question. Yeah, I don't really care if there's a definition. It um, it implies a change from normal. So you don't want non-specific changes. You want non-specific uh, manifestation, non-specific tracing, specific, or something uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you don't I think, the word, I think the word changes bothers me. But the me. concept I like, because if when we're discussing, when we're looking at the chart, 
I get normal. Okay, that's a very low risk group in general. Uh, compared to the person with the ST segment elevation. But then most people have these things which are not completely normal and not abnormal. They fit the criteria of non-specific tracings. What if they had that on their last tracing? Then it's not a change, is it? No, but oh, that's, I agree. We should get rid of the term change. But if we're going to go through and uh, try and correct all the stupid terminology in medicine, we're going to be here for a very long time. <laughs> well, I think, I think that this one is one of the ones where I am banging at the moon. I don't think there's really anything here. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, I'm not going to go to the... Don't go to Matt, mattresses. Oh, this one, no, no way. No, no. All right, for this month, we always like to have a guest here on Risk Management Monthly, and Mel and I are speaking to a wonderful guest, and there are very few people that have these kinds of credentials to bring to the table. We're speaking to Jennifer Lauder. Jennifer is located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In fact, she's <laughs> located with my group. But I want to point out that that isn't the reason we're calling her. It's because she is a nurse, a JD, so she's attorney nurse so-and-so. She has worked as a defense attorney. She has worked for a major insurance company and now is doing major risk management activities. So let's join Jennifer and say, Jennifer, thanks for coming to the program today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I feel quite honored as I've listened to many of your CD, DVD versions and been duly impressed. I'm going to start out with a proposition for you, and we will, we're probably going to have listeners who are not happy with what we're going to say today, but I want them to at least listen to the thought process on people who have to settle cases. And this is the concept of who has the right to settle a case? What most physicians don't understand is there are going to be clauses about this in the contract, and I wish that you would take just a couple of seconds and explain the thought process behind and what we mean when we say who has settlement authority. Sure. Settlement authority or otherwise known as consent clauses in many of the insurance contracts that physicians accept when they accept the malpractice coverage is really down to the issue of who has control over the decision to pay money or not pay money to close that particular case, whatever that case may be, whether it's in the form of a claim from a letter from an attorney or a pre-suit matter that the physician and the insurer and the hospital want to partner on to avoid a lawsuit or whether it's a situation where you're marching toward the courthouse steps ready to put on your armor and try your case. It's probably the most important piece of the case for the physician or the clinician because it determines many things about their reputation and their ability to practice and their record, if you will, in the future. Part of that has already been determined when the suit or the notice of claim was officially filed against them. But most insurers and hospital credentialing agencies want to know what the outcome of that is, and that's more important than whether or not you were ever sued or a claim was asserted against you. So the decision as to how that outcome will occur and what closure will take place is important. And insurance companies, hospital self-insured trust, physician self-insured organizations or entities, if you will, hold that near and dear to their heart because it 
determines the funds available to carry on that mission. You know, I want to assuage all the bad feelings in Mel at this moment by saying, Mel, I've never seen the case where a doctor, because of one entry into the data bank, has ever been denied a job in emergency medicine. Most groups, the physician group, their insurance company, they want to know the number of times you've been named and how much money was spent on those cases. If you were named five times and it never went to trial, there still may be $500,000 in claim costs in what we call the allocated loss adjustment and that's the number we're interested in. It's not whether your name went to the data bank. Would you, what are your feelings about that, Jennifer? Well, I think that's correct on many levels, but I would have to say that overall credentialing committees and insurance companies, yes, they do look for activity, but I will fight for a doctor all day long and twice on Sunday who has been sued. I don't care how many times, but that case or that suit has never resulted in a payment. Depending on the area of in the country that you practice in or the particular type of practice that you have, you may be in a higher risk area naturally. And the fact that you're named in cases and those cases cause companies to incur expense isn't really the issue. It's whether or not there was a finding sufficient to convince the decision makers and hopefully the physician that money needs to be paid on this case. And then there are the nuisance cases. And for many years, there was no reporting required on cases that didn't exceed the threshold amount of something in the neighborhood of 25000 depending on the state you were in. And it was a little bit of a game, but many people wanted their case to be resolved for 24999 or less so they could avoid that reporting requirement to both the state licensing board and the data bank. But then that changed and the rules of the game changed in most states to require dollar one and above to be to be revealed. So I think that it's really what the trend is on payouts for legitimate cases that credentialing folks and insurance folks are looking at. Sometimes the carriers will be concerned about the level of activity you've had, and there are carriers who will penalize the physician for having activity, whether it results in any sort of meritorious finding or not, and I think that is just wrong, and I realize that is true in the insurance industry, it's true in the auto industry as well as the medical malpractice industry, but I believe it's wrong and I think we should fight for the fact that penalties should only occur against, and by penalty I'm referring to higher premium or surcharges or something of that nature, not jail time, but those penalties should only come into play when there's been a finding of merit to the case sufficient to result in a decent amount of money being paid and that there is a repeat pattern there, a trend, which was the initial intention of the data bank, right? Well, you understand that the data bank has been, let's say, utilized for multiple purposes and has been subverted every time a major group, and it doesn't matter who we're talking about, but we can pick anyone who employs physicians. Let's take William Beaumont Hospital in Detroit, big 
hospital emergency medicine residency program, they pay on behalf of the hospital so that it is rare that a physician's name ever goes into the data bank where if you're at some small hospital where the physicians buy their insurance independently, their name will go to the data bank. So what the federal government wanted to get out of the data bank, it hasn't, which is a uniform view of who's done what in the country, and it's been so subverted, I think it's probably useless at this point, but it is a pain in the butt. That's exactly right. Now, I don't know that Beaumont Hospital will be happy with you revealing their secrets here, (laughs) but... We know that this happens, and it's not limited to Beaumont Hospital in Detroit, and it happens across the country. And the databank rules and regs actually do not bless that sort of loophole advantage, but hospitals are using it, and it's probably impossible for the databank resources to follow up and truly check on those cases. They could conduct audits. There have been rumors of fines and penalties against hospitals in the country here and there for not acting in compliance with the federal databank rules. So you won't find any commercial insurance carriers willing to interpret, if you will, the rules in a manner that would allow them to do that. But many of the institutions across the country who employ physicians will interpret those rules in that way and will not report the physician, but will report on behalf of the hospital only. And so far, I think that's worked fairly well for nearly all of them. And it hasn't been challenged, as far as I know, by the practitioner data bank. I've got two questions. So one is a systems thing you're talking about here. But then my two questions are, what about a case makes you decide to settle? And then my follow-up question will be, if I don't want you to settle as the physician, I say, please, Jennifer, don't do it. Don't settle. What recourse do I have to try and make you to get you to take this to court? Because I believe I can win. So first of all, why do you settle cases? Well, in general, if you've evaluated the case with your team and you believe that there is a significant chance of losing that case at trial and having a verdict entered against you, then you should settle that case because that's more desirable to be able to sort of chart your own destiny to the extent that you can as opposed to having a jury say, what that amount will be that will be on record forever against you and having that confirmed, if you will, by a jury. There are settlements that are made to avoid litigation because it's a nuisance case and you can settle it for less than you could ever afford to take on if you tried the case. And for physicians, that may not mean less money because it's not really money from your bank account on that particular case, but it may mean your time away from work and the resources that you'll lose if you're out for two or three weeks to attend a trial. It's an emotional toll. There's no doubt about the tremendous emotional toll that it takes on physicians. And even if you win that case, I have never had a physician come back and say, oh, I feel terrific and I've been vindicated. There's this huge sense of relief, but maybe not the type of victorious vindication emotion that you might want or hope to get. So there are so many reasons to settle the case. And sometimes it comes down to a business reason as opposed to the medicine in the case or the clinical decision. And that's where it gets particularly hard for the physician. And if they will be reported to the data bank and the case is settled for non 
meritorious reasons, it's very difficult for the physician usually to understand why it has to work that way or why it should work that way. Now, to take that into what happens if the insurer wants to settle the case or the employer, as it may be, and you, the physician, do not want to settle the case, there are policies out there that give the physician consent so that the case cannot be resolved without written, full, on-board consent of the physician. I think those are probably fewer and further between these days because most of the insurers want that control with respect to how the dollars will be expended. Physicians have not demonstrated, if you will, across the board that they have a good grasp of why those cases might need to be settled as opposed to tried. It's very difficult, in all fairness, when it's your case to step back and look at it from a business or more of an objective perspective. It's very personal. It would be for any of us. So it takes away the burden on the physician, if you will, to make those decisions objectively without a lot of experience and so forth to do that. But if physicians want to try the case and they're getting pushback or pressure to settle, there are things they can do. They can write letters. They can make sure that they meet with the decision makers. The biggest thing that will help is to have a rock-solid defense that your care was exemplary, you've documented the chart in a flawless manner, there are no holes, no kinks in the armor, and then you can go in with that ammunition, if you will, and say, why would anyone want to pay on a case where proper care was delivered? And most of the time, you can get support for that. It's those cases where There's a question about the standard of care that was delivered or the chart wasn't documented appropriately or there's some issue in the case that makes it appealing to the plaintiff and potentially ripe for a plaintiff's verdict where you're going to get the pressure, if you will, to settle when the physician may not want to. And I think in those situations, then you start down a different path with how to inform the physician at issue how to meet their expectations if possible. Much like working with patients in the hospital, you have to communicate appropriately and get the right information and explanations to the physician so that they understand why the decisions need to be made in the manner in which they do. And in that case, I think the overwhelming majority of physicians will come around, understand it, and agree to whatever the decision is in the case. I've also seen the opposite where the insurance company or the hospital employer wanted to try the case and the physician did not want to take the time to be sitting in trial and away from their practice and the potential emotional anguish to go through listening to that sort of evidence about what you did wrong for an extended period of time and then to have to face a jury who decides that in the end. So I think it's important, it's really critical for the right defense attorney and the right defense team to work with a physician from beginning to end so that you understand what the rationale is behind those decisions. And most reasonable physicians will end up agreeing 
with whatever those final decisions are. you got to remember, Jennifer, most reasonable physicians didn't become emergency docs. They're dermatologists <laughs> and ophthalmologists. If you're reasonable, you wouldn't do this for a living. Yeah, what are you thinking? The other thing is this team that you talk about, and by the way, Jennifer and I are part of the team here, and she's the quarterback and I'm sort of the lumbering, dumb lineman, but you want to have a doctor as part of that, and I think it ought to be a doctor decision. I mean, a doctor wants to hear from a doctor, not an insurance person or a risk manager, but it shouldn't be the doctor who's but is on the line in the case. You can't think rationally when it's you. You need to have a group of docs on the outside of that making some decisions because Jennifer laid out a scenario there which has never existed. Perfect care met the standard of care, the perfect chart, perfect experts. Yeah, we try those cases generally, <laughs> but the bottom line is I never see those cases. There's we always something. To we, we continue to hope. We continue to hope. Right. <laughs> This talk is about hope springing eternal. The problem is that if you take a Dostoevsky view of this thing, you know, man has a predilection for systems and abstract deductions so that he can totally ignore the facts sitting in front of him. And believe me, I've had to sit with docs and say straight up, you know what, I know you think you did it right. Understand there's another interpretation of this, and since you didn't write it down, it is going to be a debate as to whether you actually said these things. And I'll tell you what, at least in my experience, has gotten their attention the quickest, is if I walk in and say, I can settle this case for $70,000 today. In fact, doctor, I'll write you the check for the seventy grand. But if you lose more than that, take it out of your wallet. What I don't want is somebody who's putting their mouth where my money is. And if you're a group that pays your own insurance or you're your own insurance company, when you put that at risk, you put it at risk for every doc who's sitting around that table. And we need to express that kind of stuff. This is a business, and you didn't buy insurance to protect your honor. That's what guns are for. That's what a rapier is for. You bought insurance to defend your assets. And it's very hard, I think, for a doc. If we can close a case within the level of his insurance and he knows that he's going to be responsible for the money above that, most of them come along. Wouldn't you say, Jennifer, that most people can be convinced? I would agree. Most people don't think of it like that ever until you get to that juncture of the case. And when you have that discussion and illuminate that thought for them, it looks entirely different. By the way, we have an educated group here. We have those thousand or so emergency docs who have decided to listen to Risk Management Monthly, and I'm willing to bet half of them don't know whether they have a consent to settle clause in their contract. I would agree. I would agree. Yep. It's not something you think about checking before you fly out to the Caymans for your vacation or before you go on your next shift in a few days. You just don't think about those things until you need them. So maybe that should be part of the residency training. The problem is for those who might want that, I think that is going away for the majority of the coverage offered in this country. And certainly there's less of it than there there was 15 years ago. So I think then it's important to think about, well, if I can't have true consent in a contractual sense, then what type of coverage or what type of employer am I going to feel most comfortable with 
who I can trust to some degree to look out for my best interest and to include me as a partner. And many times physicians do not want to be included and run away from these cases and it's the head in the sand approach, in which case the insurer will make all those decisions for you and take care of the resolution of the case with some involvement required, but perhaps very minimal. That's not the best thing to do. If this is your case and this information is going to go on your record under your name for the duration of your career, you want to be as closely involved as possible. And any good defense attorney or a good defense team will appreciate that and capitalize on your involvement. And then you, in essence, will have a great deal of pull with the case. I don't want to say you'll have consent, but often we try to approach our doctors as if they do have consent so that they will feel important enough and understand that they are important enough that they'll work with us and stay involved and they will become part of that defense team rather than sort of the outlier that we have to work around. It works much better when you're included. By the way, Mel, just so that you still have a small amount of diarrhea, I did testify within the last two weeks at the trial where an emergency physician was forced into bankruptcy. The hospital settled out for very small money. He was the only object left in the case. He was the only defendant. The insurance company took the case to trial. The judgment was above his level of insurance and he was forced into seizure of assets and bankruptcy. Why do you tell me that? You've just turned a thousand people off medicine. Everybody's going to drop out now. If that's only a thousand, we're in good shape. The bottom line here is you work at the University of Southern California. You're an employee. What Jennifer will expand upon is the respondeat superior relationship there. They're responsible for you. You're an employee. So the chances they could ever get at your assets are very small. But 70% of the emergency docs in the United States don't have that relationship. 30% are employed either by the government or a university or a big hospital system. But there's 70% in whom there is at least a theoretical chance that they could lose assets. And sometimes you need to have that discussion when you're talking about settlement of a case. Because I've been involved with rogue juries that did things, they awarded numbers, Mel, that would put shivers down your spine. And it can often be overwhelming for a physician. It can ruin their career. It can, and it has. And that's unfortunate. But until our justice system catches up with some of the responsibilities that fall on ED docs in particular, those are the things that we need to try to protect our docs from. What is this concept of the high-low? Does that come into the discussion here? I don't really understand it. You've talked about it, Greg, but I didn't get it the first time. Is there some way of gaming the system a little bit? Jennifer should answer this. She's negotiated high-lows for years. High-lows are sometimes a very good thing. What that does is allow you to try the case. If you can get now backing up a step or two, the plaintiff has to agree to the high-low. So simply because the physician may want that and think that's a good idea or the insurer may recommend that doesn't mean you can just go sign up for one and it's yours. It has to be negotiated conceptually and then the numbers have to be negotiated. So it often comes into play when the parties cannot agree on what the proper settlement amount could be 
or when the physician does feel strongly about taking the case to trial, but there is a concern based on the damage to the plaintiff that any verdict that would come in favorably to the plaintiff would be in excess of the policy limit available. So many plaintiffs will agree to a high-low because they also recognize they could lose the case, and then the money that the attorney has advanced to prosecute the case, if you will, is lost, even though they may have a contract with the plaintiff and that the plaintiff is required to pay them back. Most plaintiffs do not have those types of resources and that's a pipe dream for the attorney. So the high-low guarantees the plaintiff some money, and that number is negotiated. We would love it to be $10, but that's not realistic either. So there has to be a number on the low end that is attractive enough to the plaintiff that they will agree to cap it on the high end and not roll the dice. And so typically if you have a million-dollar policy, you may be able to enter into a high-low somewhere in the low hundreds to perhaps a million, perhaps 800,000. It's all over the board depending on the facts in your particular case and who's doing the negotiating. But what you've done is ensure that the physician is not going to face an excess verdict if they indeed take the case through trial, through verdict. And you've guaranteed the plaintiff that if the defense wins and they were wrong about the case, they'll still get money. I was just involved in one, Jennifer, where the high-low was no matter what happened, if the doctor lost $900,000 was the, as high as it was going to go, the low end of that was $400,000 even if the physician won, uh, you know, right. signed off, all set, jury came back at $4.4 million. And now you're asking why I got involved in the case. I wasn't in the underlying case. The family came back and sued the attorney, the plaintiff attorney, for legal <laughs> malpractice because he'd entered into a settlement which was unreasonable, even though they had been told what that number was. They claimed that they didn't have sufficient knowledge base to be able sure. to make the number. And so now he's in a case. So I'm actually involved in defending a plaintiff's attorney. It couldn't be better. I get to watch them twist in the wind. I mean, it couldn't yeah. be any better than this. <laughs> How often is that actually done? Is high-low something that's very rarely done, or is it, this is a common thing? It is not uncommon, but it's also not a regular occurrence, and that's because the case has to be right for it. Both sides have to have some angst about their chance of success, but still can't reach settlement. So it's a multifactorial thing and really dependent on the individual case and what has occurred. But it's not uncommon, and it's something to keep in mind anytime you go to trial. I will say that many times plaintiffs will not accept a high-low because you can't get the numbers high enough for them. And insurers aren't always willing to pay 400 on the low side. I've never paid that on the low side as a defense insurer. That's a lot of money for a low. But Je then again, a $4 million verdict was probably a good deal. Jennifer, before we go and our time is running out, I want you to comment on something that I know our listeners want to hear about, and that is the bad faith letter. The communication from the physician to the insurance company 
that he or she wants them to settle, and the insurance company is balking at this. Would you explain that to our listeners? Because I'm sure they all want to hear about this. Sure, sure. It's the opposite of what we spoke about earlier. If you want to take the case to trial and they're trying to pay money on your behalf, then that's a different scenario. But when you recognize that this is a case you want to settle and you've got support for that by virtue of negative reviews from experts who've been retained to look at the case on your behalf and you're trying to get the insurance company to listen to you and resolve this case within your policy limit so that you will not have personal assets on the line and they refuse, then we trot out our letter that says, Dear Insurance Company, I demand that you settle this case for X or within my limit, and if you do not, I will consider that to be in bad faith and will hold you responsible as the company for any excess verdict. It's something that you should always be thinking about if you are asking for a settlement and you're getting pushback or they just say, no, we're not going to settle the case, you don't have consent, which works in the reverse direction, and we're going to try this one. And it will protect the physician's assets if they are able to get that letter to the company. Sometimes it is dependent on the plaintiff's demand also. If the plaintiff wants a 100 gazillion millions of dollars and the insurance company cannot pay that within your limit to resolve the case, then that's not necessarily a bad faith situation. But if the plaintiff will take 950 and you've got a 1 million policy and the company won't settle, you need to write that letter because then it protects you and your personal funds or in some instances your PC or your corporate entity from that excess. There are companies out there who shall remain nameless who are famous for taking cases to trial no matter what, staring down the other side and thinking that nine out of ten times they'll come out ahead at sort of the physician might be the casualty along the way. And those companies, however, I think have paid out a number of excess judgments over the years and accept that responsibility. So it isn't like they're going to refuse to ever insure you again if you send a bad faith letter. It isn't like they're going to send uh, Guido to your house in the middle of the night and take a pound of flesh or anything like that. It's a business transaction. They understand it. They almost expect it. So you should always do that. Well, Jennifer, it's been a real pleasure to spend this time with you. We hope, both Mel and I hope, we can call upon you again because we have lots more questions which have to do with defense strategy and insurance and what it actually says in the policy and about how you have to cooperate with the insurance company. And we would really like to have you back to discuss some of these other issues. Mel? Yeah, that was very instructional. And I would like to now just spend a little time and go vomit, if that's all right with you. <laughs> very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to speak with both of you. Doing another wine of the month. And this time we're doing another blended California wine. And they blend with magnificent wines. This is a combination of Zinfandel and it is the grape that is grown the most. This uses a small amount of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon, and it is a scrumptious. This is a heavy, wonderful wine to have with a uh, some sort of pasta dinner. And it's from Cupcake Vineyards, and it's called Red Velvet. 
12 bucks a bottle. Try it. You'll like it. Actually, I have tried it because it's at Costco. This is interesting. Well, speaking yeah, of good. Costco, uh, last week when I was in Whistler, uh, one of the doctors at the table, Neil Little, who we know, and uh, ordered a uh, wine, white wine that was really pretty cool, even by Bucata standards. It was called Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc, and it was also at Costco. Well, I'm blown away that there's even a Bucata standard for wine, other than is it wet and, and can I get the cor- <laughs> yeah, can no, I it was can I get the the screw top off of it? Right. I think he he said it was like around thirteen bucks there, so this meets the. Uh, Mel criteria. It does, and it's a Costco, and I've had it, and it's very good. So this comes with three recommendations, it sounds like. Two at least. Uh, Two at least, (laughs) (laughs) and and a bucata on the side. So it's uh, two and a half recommendations. Go out, try that, and let us know how you like.